You are listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, where it's all about responding with confidence to the legal, financial, and personal challenges created by disability, unexpected illness, or simply aging in general. Join us weekly as elder law attorneys Tim Takis, Barbara McGinnis, Chris Johnson, and other members of the Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law Team talk about the tools, techniques, strategies, and services that will make the elder care journey easier for everyone involved. Get ready, because aging starts now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Aging Starts Now. I'm Chris Johnson, partner and VA accredited attorney at Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law. Today, we are talking about medical malpractice with medical malpractice attorney Clint Kelly, partner at the Kelly Firm in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Welcome, Clint. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me as a guest. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to do this. We love getting this information out to the community, and we know how busy you are. So you making time for this makes our day. And I think uh, with that, I think we should jump right into it. Can you tell us or tell our audience, what is medical malpractice? What is medical negligence? What does that really look like when families are out there and they, they see something happen to a loved one? How do they know whether or not that's something they're dealing with so that they even know whether or not it's something they should reach out to you about? Medical malpractice are basically two things. It's a major medical mistake that causes a major medical injury. Uh, these can be cases where patients who've gone to the hospital sustain brain damage because of a surgery gone awry, an infection that's not treated appropriately that leads to an amputation. Uh, perhaps a patient develops a blood clot in the spine after spinal surgery that's not diagnosed properly leads to paralysis. Uh, sometimes a patient goes in for an eye examination and instead of being diagnosed for glaucoma, they're misdiagnosed as having cataracts. And six months later, that patient goes blind. Those are examples where uh, doctors and uh, hospitals or nurses uh, violate what we call the standard of care, which is just fancy legalese for the medical rules that apply to a given situation. And when that violation causes an injury or fails to prevent an injury, then that is a case that can be brought against the healthcare provider. And you said there were there were two types. So we have the the major medical mistake, and then is the other one like the misdiagnosis. Yeah, it's, it's a major, it's two components. It's the major medical oh, two mistake. two components, I got you. Yes, yes, that very causes good, very good. a major injury. The key thing to, to bear in mind is there are all kinds of medical mistakes, but those mistakes may not lead to anything. Sometimes patients have bad outcomes, uh, even when the care is good, and sometimes yep. the care is bad, but the patient may still have a good outcome. So you have to have a bad medical care that causes a bad outcome. I got it. I got it. Well, and that injury, we all know, I think all the attorneys know that injury component because you don't have damages if you don't have an injury. And that's a, that's a key component to this stuff. Uh, and so, so let's talk about that. Let's say someone believes they have that. What, what do they need? What documentation do they need in order to prove that? What, what types of things are you looking for when you sit down with a client as far as documentation so that you can prove your case in a court of law? Medical records are the mother's milk of this litigation that always comes down to what is charted or, in some cases, what is not charted in the patient's medical records. So the first thing that the patient or the family needs to do is go to the physician 
the clinic or the hospital and insist on getting a full copy of their medical records so that I can have it, have my staff synthesize it, and then we'll have an expert review it to determine whether there's been a violation of the standard of care. Now, you say what is charted, what is not charted, and, mm-hmm. and that what is not charted can be important because the, the absence of evidence can sometimes be evidence itself. How, how would a family member, would they be able to determine if something wasn't charted? Probably not. In most cases, your family won't know how to evaluate a medical chart to determine whether or not there's information that's been deleted or information that simply has not been provided as it should. That's where I come in because I know what I'm looking for, as do my nursing and medical experts. They know what's supposed to be charted, and they also can tell from looking at a chart uh, whether or not the care that's been provided is inappropriate. Okay. So you have some medical professionals on your staff then? That's correct. I I have uh, a nurse and a physician who I call a screener, and that person is responsible for going through the medical records and giving a preliminary indication whether or not they think or he thinks, depends on whether I have a nurse and physician together or whether I just use the physician. They make a decision whether there's been inappropriate care, and then if they do, I go find the appropriate medical expert Let's say it's an anesthesia case that involves a problem during anesthesia. I'll go find an anesthesiologist to review the records and then tell me whether I have a case. Okay, very good. So they're, they kind of take care of that initial screening and they're able to ferret out, hey, this should be here or this certainly shouldn't be here. And then one, once you kind of have that, that first filter, if you will, then you, get, you find out someone who truly is the duty expert in that field, and then you reach out to them kind of for the deep dive? That's correct. That's exactly how it happens. Fantastic. How often would you say, do you see evidence, do you come across where they've tried and hide the evidence and, or, or covered up? Is it is it generally, it's in the medical records and we, we you know, it's there and the case is what it is, or do you often see people try and hide it? Most of the time, it's the the latter, excuse me, the former, where it is what it is. I got it backwards. But there are occasions, at least a few times each year, where I'll go through the records and something doesn't look right. Uh, And particularly with electronic medical records, we can get what's called an audit trail, where we can tell when the chart has been changed by entry through the computer system, where someone will go into a terminal, use their password and username, and change an entry. And oh, if, the audit, yeah, if the audit trail uh, shows that, then we can say there was a variable, say a number that was five at the time, and it was changed to a 10 later. That's your evidence that medical chart's been altered. Boy, I'll, I'll bet you that. I mean, that's like finding the proverbial smoking gun, isn't it? When you have something like that, that probably is, is uh, turns a case into a slam dunk. It is. I've never had to go to trial over a case where a medical chart's been altered because the doctors and the hospitals know it's the kiss of death. Yeah, and they that, at that point it's just talking settlement. That's correct. Unbelievable. So tell us, tell us about your firm. The types of cases you take. We handle tip, the typical cases are cases where there's been a misdiagnosis. Uh, say, like for example, someone that was, as I told you, comes in with an eye condition and. Uh, they are misdiagnosed as having cataracts where they have glaucoma and cancer. That's a typical case. 
We'll take, uh, believe it or not, we have uh, ba- medical battery cases. Those are cases where the, the doctors operate on the wrong body part or, as we had a couple of years ago, operate on the wrong patient, if you can believe that. I can't uh, believe they operated on the wrong patient? This How is, does that happen? Got, a, got one baby mixed up for another baby and uh, did what's called a tongue-tie procedure on the wrong baby. Just with case went viral. It was uh, reported in the magazines. It was a very, very, it was unbelievable. People just were shocked that something like that happens. And, and those things happen, by the way, more often because so many more patients are hitting the medical system in Nashville, but there aren't enough clinics or hospitals uh, available to handle this patient load. So the margin of error has shrunk. So that's yeah. why you see things like that. Informed consent is another case where someone's not provided all the information about a medical procedure and they get injured badly because they went into it without knowing what they were supposed to. Uh, negligent surgery. We have uh, a few of those each year where there was a, uh, a violation of standard care and the way the surgery was handled. Post-op infections, you know, where patients weren't monitored correctly after surgery develop a terrible infection. Also, blood clots. You'll find, particularly as in the patient population that's above age 50 or 60 and those that are, are, are um, a little bit on the overweight side, those patients are susceptible to developing blood clots in hospitals. Blood clots can lead to pulmonary uh, embolism and can kill. So those are the typical types of cases that we handle uh, every year. Okay. Well, and it's funny because a couple of those things you say really hit home, and I think they'll hit home for our listeners too because – we all have the experience, you know, when when you look for a doctor in this area, just even a general practitioner, they're hard to find. We Our population growth has exploded so much, and that's interesting that you guys see a result of that, and that is everyone's margin for error are just cut down, and they're so small because of, of probably just the workloads they have. And then the uh, the wrong body part, when I, I had shoulder surgery a few years ago, and, and I'm sure this was implemented because of mistakes that were made in the past, my surgeon came in and met with me, you know, one final time the day of the surgery as I'm being prepped and actually wrote his initials in Sharpie marker on my shoulder. Uh, and he, he wrote on the shoulder he was going to operate. He initialed that shoulder and he initial, or he wrote, do not operate on the other shoulder uh, so that there was like, it was idiot proof, if you will. And I, I laughed, yes. I said, do you guys really do this? He said, we do it every time. Have to, they call it a timeout procedure where before every surgery, they are required to identify the body part they work on, identify the correct patient, identify the correct instrumentation or, uh, uh, the types of equipment they're going to use and check the informed consent to make sure that the authorization has been signed by the patient. You have to do all four of those things before you start cutting. That's the standard of care. And if you do that, you won't hurt anybody else. But unfortunately, there are shortcuts from time to time. I had no idea that that was the the rationale behind why the doctor was doing all that. That's incredible. Well, and, And what that does is, I mean, practices like yours at the end of the day, make all of our medical care safer because they have to implement those protocols to make sure that they're abiding by that standard of care and that that high tide raises all boats. Um, So we're very fortunate for that. So tell us, I think it'd be important for the audience also to know our listeners to understand what types of cases do you not take uh, so that they, you know, they're going to the right person. Sure. Cases where there are bad outcomes, but there's no negligence, which, you know, obviously if there's no negligence, you don't have a case. Also, and these are 
difficult decisions for me, but cases where the damages are not very high. You know, remember I said there needs to be a major medical injury. Uh, if you've got a case that's that hovers in the $100,000 range or $150,000 range, most of the time we can't take those cases because these cases cost so much money. By the time we've paid for the experts, the court reporters, videographers, um, other types of services that we need for the litigation, we may rack up a seventy-five dollars or $80,000 bill before we've ever walked into the courtroom. And so you get to a point where the expenses of the litigation uh, could equal the amount of the damages. And so it's unfortunately uh, a case that you can't afford to take. And also the insurance companies for the doctors and the hospitals, if the amount of the injury is fairly limited, they just won't pay. They'll say, hey, you know, we'll take our chances. We win most of these cases. We'll probably win it. And if we don't, you know, $150,000, no skin off their back. It's it's no big deal to them. It's a different, it's a completely different mentality than, say, a car wreck case where, you know, every dollar saved is something that the insurance company looks for. It's it's more personal in malpractice cases. So we have to, yeah. We can only take cases that are fairly have fairly substantial damages uh, in order to be able to be successful. Wow, that's got to be, and I I completely understand that, and the 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 finances of it have to make sense. That's got to be frustrating for a client to hear the. Uh, what, what's your recommendation for a client who who suffered a, a, a damage like that? That's that's in the maybe high five figures or right nosing around hundred thousand or. Are they out of luck? Do they have any other alternatives? Yeah, I tell them there's one or two avenues to approach. First is try to work it out on their own. Perhaps they might be able to reach some type of compromise or settlement, which unfortunately is pretty rare because they take a pretty hard line, the insurance companies do in these cases. And the second thing is go to the board of medical examiners or if it's the board of nursing, uh, also to the hospital or nursing home involved and file a complaint. Don't let them get away with it is basically what I'm saying. You, you, you yep. make your mark, you file your complaint, you press it. There may be no change of money, but you can certainly cause some headaches. And sometimes headaches can make changes. It, there may be a situation where you can't help yourself, but you might prevent that next person from getting hurt. Yep. And that's and that's one of the big things. I mean, that that's a big result of this is that you get that change behavior and that, that someone else doesn't suffer the same result you do. So, well, that's fantastic advice, Clint. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we uh, wrap things up today? Sure. First of all is I want everyone to know if they don't remember anything else from this session, two things actually. First of all, anytime they go to a hospital, make sure they have someone with them 24 hours at a time because any, when you're with a patient and someone comes in and wants to give your, your family member a shot, you can say, hey, what's that for? Tell me what that injection's for. Or, hey, what is that equipment for? Or, hey, what is the treatment plan? Push back and make the healthcare providers explain what they're doing. That can prevent medical mistakes. It's very, very important to have a patient advocate with you at all times. That's the first thing. The second thing is I want people to remember every doctor, and every hospital has malpractice insurance coverage. A lot of people think when they see these cases, oh, that doctor's going to reach into his deep pocket and pay for the judgment or pay for the settlement, and that's not true. They all have insurance. Just like we all have insurance when we drive, they have insurance for covering medical malpractice claims. 
that's paid through insurance companies or hospitals or self-insured. So I want people to understand that the monetary aspect of this is compensation from an insurance company, but also, as you said earlier, the lawsuit itself or the claim can help bring about changes in policies that save lives. That's fantastic. I, I don't think anyone could summarize that better. Clint, we appreciate your time so very much. Thank you for being willing to be a guest on our podcast. We appreciate your time greatly. Hey, and I thank you very much. I enjoyed it. You got it. All right, everyone. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Tagus McGinnis is a life care planning law firm helping families respond to the legal and financial challenges caused by chronic illness or disability of an elderly loved one. Join us next week for another episode of Aging Starts Now. Thank you for listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast. For more information about today's show, visit tn-elderlaw.com, click on the free resources tab, and then click on Aging Starts Now. You'll find the show notes there. And while you're at it, why not check out all the free resources available at tn-elderlaw.com? Document downloads, the Tagus McGinnis blog, educational videos, informative articles, helpful links, a TV show, and more. It's all there free for the taking. If you enjoy listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave us a review. It's easy to do on whatever app you use to listen. We would love your feedback on the show. Aging Starts Now. We'll be back next week with more candid discussions about challenges created by aging, disability, and unexpected illness.